0: How many times have you taught or been taught the story of David and Goliath, ending up with a challenge to have faith like David, to do battle with the giants in your life, whatever they may be? Well, today, as we open up our Bibles to 1 Samuel, we discover that this story is not really about our courage or faith or fight. In fact, it's about much more than David's courage and faith and fight. This story is ultimately about the greatest battle in the history of the world, against the greatest evil in the world, and therefore about the greatest victory in the world. A victory that we can claim as our own as we are united by faith to the victor. David's greater son, Jesus Christ. I might as well admit it, I'm not a big sports fan. Now, I don't have anything against sports. I just have a hard time working up much fervor in regard to caring a lot about who wins the big game. Now, of course, this puts me in the minority, not only in my own household, where sports prognostications and statistics and assessments are standard conversational fare, but it also puts me in the minority, it would seem, in the whole of humanity. But if you are a sports fan and if you are ever around sports fans, then at one time or another, you will have heard those fans say, we won. Now I find this interesting because these are people who didn't practice for the game and they didn't suit up for the game. And in fact, they were nowhere near the playing field. And most of them weren't even on the sidelines or in the stands. And yet they can say with a straight face, we won. Somewhere along the way they have merged their own identity, their own aspirations and destiny with that of the team. Diehard fans see the players who march onto the field or onto the court as extensions of themselves and they are joined to those brave warriors by common colors that they're wearing if not shared effort and by their passion for victory instead of defeat. The history books of the Old Testament that we've been studying have more to do with battlefields than they do with playing fields, but there are some similarities. In the scene we're going to witness today, a lone warrior goes out to battle while everyone else stays on the sidelines. And yet when the battle is over, all of those who have merged their identity and destiny with the victor could rightly shout and say, we won, even though they were never on the field. But of course, this isn't a game. In fact, when we look closely, we'll discover that this story is actually about the most significant battle in the universe, a conflict in which the entire human race is at stake. We began our study in Joshua, And since then, life in Israel has gone from the heights of entering and possessing the land to the depths of utter chaos and catastrophe in the land. The writer of Judges stated the problem clearly. There was no king in Israel. And when we came to the end of the story of Ruth, the writer seemed to be pointing us toward the solution to that problem. A descendant of Boaz and Ruth. The one who will become the great king of Israel so today as we open up to first Samuel we find a barren woman named Hannah and she has come to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and she is pouring out her broken-hearted desperate prayer to the Lord promising that if he will give her a child she will give that child back to him in chapter 2 It's a few years later, and she is back in Shiloh with the young son that God has given to her, and she is following through on her commitment, bringing Samuel to live out his days with the priests. Now, one would think that her heart would be heavy, and surely there were tears in her eyes, and yet we see in chapter 2 that her heart is full of song. And in the closing words of her song, her prayer, we sense that Hannah has seen beyond herself and her son when she says in 1 Samuel, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. When Hannah prayed this prayer, there was no king in Israel. And yet she prayed that God will give strength to his king. And more than that, she has seen that this king will be the Lord's anointed. You see, Hannah's prayer is really a prophecy. Hannah is able to see past the Lord's work in her little life into the expanse of the whole world and beyond the years of her life into the distant future. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, and translated into Greek, it becomes Christos or Christ. Hannah's heart is celebrating not only God's work in her own womb, but God's work in the womb of another ordinary Israelite, who will one day give birth to the king that God has always intended to rule over his earth, the Messiah King. Hannah's son Samuel grew up serving the priests, and eventually he became a great prophet and judge of Israel. He called the people back to the Lord and prayed to the Lord for the people. But Samuel grew old, and his sons weren't fit to take his place. And that's when the people of Israel came to Samuel with a proposal. We read about it in 1 Samuel 8. Look in verse 5 and 6. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. You see, the problem with their proposal wasn't that they wanted a king. The problem was that they'd forgotten that they already had a king. Their warrior king had destroyed the Egyptian army and brought down the walls of Jericho and defeated many other foes without the Israelites even raising a sword. If they would submit single-heartedly to the king they had, God himself, They would never experience defeat in battle. But they no longer saw their battles as the Lord's battles. They wanted the security that they thought a human king with his standing army could provide. Instead of returning to their king in glad submission, they rejected their king in naive rebellion. A second problem with their proposal was the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a king like other nations had so that they could be like all the other nations. But remember that God had brought them out of Egypt to be a kingdom of priests, a blessing to other nations by being distinct from them. But they didn't want to be set apart. They wanted to fit in. They wanted to operate like the other nations who trusted in military might and savvy of a king. The kind of king that they could see instead of trusting a divine king that they couldn't see. Even though God had always promised to go out before them in battle, they said they wanted a human king to go out before them to fight their battles. Obviously, God had always intended that one day there would be a kingship in Israel. Remember back when God made his covenant with Abraham? He told him, that kings would come from him. Later, when Jacob gave his final blessing to his sons, he prophesied of a kingship that would come from the tribe of Judah and rule over Israel. And back in the book of Deuteronomy, God gave a profile of the person who should be king among his people. So it wasn't that this desire for a king was evil, but that they wanted the wrong king. For all the wrong reasons at the wrong time and from the wrong initiation look back in first Samuel 8 look at verses 6 and 7 and Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them oftentimes in the Bible We see that God judges people, not by withholding what they ask for, but by actually giving them what they ask for. The Hebrew word for Saul, this king he's going to give them, is a form of the verb to ask. And so when God gave them Saul, he seemed to be just what the people were asking for. He was tall and handsome and he looked the part. The Lord said to Samuel in 1 Samuel nine, sixteen, You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. God has heard their cry and he's given them a leader. But notice God says to anoint a prince over his people, not a king. Rather than reigning as an absolute monarch, whoever is king over Israel will be subject to God's word mediated through his prophet. Because Israel was God's people and the Philistines were the enemies of God, confronting those enemies was supposed to be more like a worship service than a war. Preparation for battle was more about offering sacrifices than sharpening swords. Preparations sounded more like hearing God's word, from God's spokesman, the prophet, than it was about hearing military strategists giving orders. Now Samuel had told Saul to wait for him in Gilgal, where he would offer sacrifice on Israel's behalf before engaging the Philistines. But while Saul was waiting for Samuel to arrive, his soldiers were slowly slipping away and going home, and so Saul decided he just couldn't wait. For the prophet to give him the instructive word before going into battle and so he assumed the role of priest and offered sacrifices himself and prepared for battle and sure enough right then samuel finally showed up and saul felt caught here's what saul said to samuel we find it in 1 samuel 13 verse 12 i forced myself he says and offered the burnt offering and samuel said to saul You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Here we find the expression that we usually hear as a man after God's own heart, which makes us picture a man who has a heart like God's heart or a man who is pursuing to know the heart of God. But the expression is literally, the Lord has sought for himself a man according to his own heart. Samuel is saying that God is looking for a king to sit on the throne over Israel who suits his desires and purposes rather than the kind of king that suits the people's desires and purposes. In Saul, God had given the people the kind of king they wanted, but now the Lord was about to give the people the kind of king he wanted. The people had rejected God as their king and now God has rejected Saul as the people's king. Saul had shown a fundamental inability or unwillingness to submit to the divine rule as mediated through the prophet, and therefore a fundamental unsuitability to be king in Israel. Turn to 1 Samuel 16, where we read, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. When Samuel went to Jesse's house and he saw Jesse and his sons, Samuel was sure he saw Saul's replacement. He saw David's older brother, Eliab, tall and handsome. I mean, he looks like a king, just as Saul had looked like a king. Look at First Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And then in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Evidently, David was so insignificant to the family that he wasn't even called in from the fields to be included in this once-in-a-lifetime honor of offering a sacrifice with Israel's great judge Samuel. But that was about to change. Look in verse 12 of chapter 16. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready and had beautiful eyes and was handsome." So David was handsome, but hardly impressive. He knew how to handle sheep, but there was no sign he knew how to handle a nation. He had proven himself out in the grazing fields, but was unproven on the battlefield. Yet this was the unlikely king God had chosen. Samuel could only see the outward appearance, which evidently didn't appear very royal. But God could see into David's heart. And while David might not have been impressive, he had integrity. While he might not have had proven battle skills, he did have a passion for God's honor. This is what God was looking for, for a king who would reign over Israel. I wonder, do you find it a comforting thing or a condemning thing to consider that God sees and knows the heart? You see, God sees through our reputations into the reality, for good or for bad. Some of us look so good on the outside and no one would guess what is really going on on the inside of our heart. People around us can't always see the stubborn disobedience, the steady stream of defeats in our battles against ongoing sin, the stifling darkness that defines the real culture of our inner lives. But God does. And likewise, other people can't always see the secret sacrifices, the costly surrenders, all the little deaths to self that define the culture of hearts that have been invaded and ruled by King Jesus. But God does. Everyone in Jesse's house must have been surprised and perhaps even confused when this happened. Look at first Samuel 16 verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the midst of his brothers. Throughout the Old Testament, people were consecrated for divine service such as priesthood and kingship through an anointing ceremony. So as the oil dripped down the face and beard, it was a visual representation of God pouring out his spirit on the man, empowering him for his holy duties. So to be anointed was to be set aside and equipped by God and for God. A person anointed by God acted in God's name with the help of God's Spirit under God's protection and with God's authority. Look back in verse 13. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Up to this point in the Old Testament scriptures, We've read about the Spirit of the Lord rushing upon people chosen for various tasks by God, empowering them to do what God has called them to do. But this was different. In the other cases, the rushing upon of the Spirit was temporary. But this was from that day forward. It was permanent. All of Israel's history had been pointing toward that day and the anointing of this shepherd king, David had become the Lord's anointed, the Christ. We can't help but see in David's life the shadows of the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, Christ Jesus, cast backward into history. And once we begin to see David in this light, it begins to change everything about the way we've always understood about what happens next. The people had originally asked for a king because of the threat from the Philistines. So it doesn't surprise us to read at the beginning of chapter 17, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. The Philistines gathered at Soko, uncomfortably close to the heart of Israel. And they weren't just another enemy. They were a threat to Israel's existence. And Saul had had mixed results in his previous jousts with them. And this time, there was a new wrinkle in the conflict. Look in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Goliath, this Philistine among Philistines, was nine feet tall. But he wasn't just tall. He seemed to have superhuman strength. Look in verses 5 through 7. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. So Goliath was covered head to toe with the high tech weaponry of his day, bronze. And this bronze armor was heavy. It weighed 125 pounds. And then he carried a spear with a tip on the end of the spear that weighed 15 pounds. So it was like he had a 15 pound bowling ball on the end of his spear. And it was seemingly nothing for him to carry it and project this heavy spear through the air toward his adversaries. But what is this coat of mail? Other translations call it a coat of scale armor. His bronze armor was like the scales of a snake. Picture this. When Goliath went out onto the battlefield, he was covered in what looked like snake skin from head to toe. He's like a nine-foot-tall serpent. And he has an alternative proposal to bloody battle between the two armies. So he shouted to all the ranks of Israel. Look in verse 8 and 9. Here's what Goliath says. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Goliath has challenged them to choose a man, to go out before them in battle. And of course, Israel had chosen a man for this. That had been the whole point of demanding a king. They had told Samuel that they wanted a king who would go out before them and fight their battles. But Saul, the tallest man among all of the Israelites, the most likely man to go out and face this giant, He's back hiding in his tent, just as scared as the rest of them. For 40 days straight, Goliath has come out and said the same thing, issued the same challenge, and seemingly Saul has no intentions of going out to meet him. Goliath is undiluted evil. If the person who goes out to battle for Israel loses this battle, all Israel will be in bondage to this evil. And it would seem that all of Israel was destined to become slaves of their enemies, the Philistines, until hope showed up. Verse 12 begins, Now David, the shepherd boy had been sent to the battlefront with food for his brothers. And when he got there and he heard the threats of Goliath, he could hardly believe it. This goon from Gath was insulting the God of Israel. And no one among the Israelites seemed to care. No one else in the camp seemed a bit offended for God's honor. But David was. And so he asked in verse 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. The Israelite army saw Goliath as unbeatable, but David saw him as uncircumcised, holy without the presence and power and promises of God. David understood that to taunt and mock and threaten the people of God is to taunt and mock and threaten God himself. And he simply couldn't understand how anyone could stand for it. And so he went and offered himself to Saul. Look here in chapter 17, verse 32. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. But before David could do battle against Goliath, he had to do battle with the derision of his brother Eliab who simply wanted his little brother to be quiet and go away. And David also had to do battle with the belittling of Saul, who was understandably concerned about the tremendous size and experience differential between Goliath and David. But David was not focused on his adversary's size or experience. He was resting in his own experience of God's deliverance, in lesser battles against lions and bears. And he was resting in Yahweh's covenant promise to save his people. We see in verse 40, Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So David went out to fight Goliath. The weight of the future of God's people rested on this shepherd boy. David, however, was confident, not in himself, but in God's conquering power. And though he was insulted by Goliath, he wasn't intimidated by him. Look in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Goliath has blasphemed the God of Israel. And under the law of Israel, back in Leviticus, what is to be done to blasphemers? They are to be stoned. And David, the Lord's anointed, was about to become the Lord's instrument to bring about the Lord's vengeance on the Lord's enemy for the Lord's glory. David, with one smooth stone hurled at Goliath, crushed the head of the serpent. Look back in chapter 17, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath And killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. David, the Lord's anointed, was victorious. The Israelites wouldn't have to become the slaves of the Philistines. The victory won single-handedly by the Lord's anointed became the shared victory of God's people. They didn't go out to battle. And yet they could claim victory vicariously through the one who represented them on the field of battle. And as the reality of this sinks in, as the greater battle between the Lord's anointed and the Lord's enemy comes into focus, can you see that we too are being swept into this victory? Oftentimes, When we've heard this story taught in Sunday school, or when we've taught the story in Sunday school, this is the point in the story. When the challenge has become to be like David, to have David's faith and confidence in God, to have his courage in fighting the giants in our lives, and to trust God to make us victorious over whatever difficulties we face. In that version, the lesson to be learned from David and Goliath was that it's up to us to step up to the plate and have faith like David so that God can give us the kind of victory that David had over Goliath. But in reality, we are not meant to see ourselves in David's place in this story. Instead, we should see ourselves back there in the ranks of Israel's army, shaking and afraid, intimidated and tired. Our efforts of finding someone to rule on the throne of our lives, who will be our champion and protector, have completely failed. And it looks like we will be slaves forever to our greatest enemy, Satan himself. But we have a champion. It's a boy from Bethlehem, and he didn't look strong or kingly, but more like a shepherd. And he was sent to us by our father, and we rejected him and mocked him and just wanted to silence him. He refused to arm himself with the kind of armor that everyone knows is needed to get ahead in this world the kind that impresses, and intimidates, and overpowers. He wasn't concerned with preserving his own safety, but only with preserving God's honor. And when he went into battle against the great enemy of his people, he went alone. There, not in the Valley of Elah, but on the hill of Calvary, our champion was victorious. Not through impressive strength, but in crushing weakness. There on the cross, Jesus, the offspring of the woman, experienced the bruising of his heel, and there our champion crushed the head of the ancient serpent. The writer of Hebrews says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If the Goliath of death had defeated Jesus, we would forever be slaves to death. But our champion defeated death by his resurrection, his victory over death has become our victory over death. And so we can mock its hollow threats. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Like David, Jesus was an anticipated king. Hannah's heart sang, my heart exults in the Lord when it was revealed to her that God was going to miraculously give her a child and that he would one day put a king on the throne and so Mary's heart also saying my heart magnifies the Lord when the angel told her that she would miraculously have a son who would be that king over the entire earth Jesus was a rejected king the people of Jesus day we looking for a king like the kings of the nations around them, a king who would exercise military might and save them from human oppressors. And when Pilate presented him to the Jews saying, Behold your king, they made it clear that he was not the kind of king they wanted, crying out, Away with him! Crucify him! Jesus, the Lord's anointed, was rejected by those he came to see. Like David, Jesus was an unexpected king. Jesus didn't have an outward appearance that would lead anyone to recognize him as a king. The prophet Isaiah described him as having no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He ruled over his people in an unexpected way, saying, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercised authority over them. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Like David, Jesus was an anointed king. He was set apart by the Spirit from his very conception. The angel told Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was publicly anointed at his baptism. When we read that the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and then his third anointing came, when he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, the writer to the Hebrews uses the words of the psalmist to celebrate this anointing, writing, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion. And finally, like David, Jesus is a victorious king. We face an enemy, an army of enemies, in fact, who are as real, as powerful, and as terrifying as Goliath. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy isn't covered in bronze and hurling heavy spears. He's armed with darkness and deception and he hurls condemnation at us and he lies to us and he inflicts us with pleasures that only bring pain. He threatens to enslave us To destructive addictions and defeating patterns and incapacitating fears. And we would turn and run, certain that we are doomed, except that we have a champion. And just when we are tempted to give way to despair, we hear the voice of the Son of David saying, Let no man's heart fail. Your servant will go and fight. Jesus has defeated the enemy that threatened us with lifelong slavery to death. And if God is for us in Christ, who can be against us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Not because we are strong. Not because we can win the battle if we just have faith like David. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Our victory and security comes from being united to our champion. Because our shepherd, warrior, king has gone out before us and has crushed the head of the serpent. We can rightly say we won and know that we will share in his victory forever.